really special show coming up for you today. Let me throw some numbers your way. 476 PGA Tour starts with 16 wins, 25 runners up, and 27 times finishing third. 71 major championships played with a major championship victory, five runner-up positions, and 12 top fives. Unbelievable record from a legend that will be joining us in just a moment. This is one of those special days where when you have someone, I'll tell you who it is, it's Tom Weiskopf that's going to be joining us. We'll talk about everything, including that epic 1975 Masters where it came down to he and Jack Nicholas and Johnny Miller and his 1973 win at the Open at Troon. We're going to go through all of it for you and with this very unique man, including his architectural design and what's an architect's design philosophy and how much does a golf course reflect the player himself, the man himself, or does he adapt to the land that is before him? I cannot wait to speak with Mr. Tom Weiskopf, who is standing by. Making it possible to do so are all of our partners, including the PGA Tour Superstore, including PXG, including Tour Edge and Bridgestone and Ben Hogan Golf. We're going to talk about Ben Hogan to Mr. Weiskopf for sure, as well, all of our marketing partners. So thank you to all of them. A really cool special Fairways of Life coming up for you. It is worldwide. Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the Fairways of Life show, on air, online, and around the world. With the most candid interviews, unforgettable stories, taking you beyond the ropes. Here's your host, New York Times best-selling author and golf channel's Matt Adams. This is huge for us and an absolute treat and an honor to welcome our next guest. Tom Weisskopf doesn't get anywhere near the credit that he deserves. Gary Player once said on this very show, and I'm quoting, Tom Weisskopf was a better golfer than Palmer, Nicholas, or myself, close quote. Jack Nicholas said, Weisskopf has as much talent as any player I've ever seen on tour. Hall of Famer Lenny Watkins said, he made golf look easy. I'd say you can't find stronger endorsements than that. His career record on the PGA Tour was stuff of legend. He turned pro in 1964, and by 1968, he had figured something out because that stretch of golf from 1968 to 1978 almost doesn't make any sense. Are you ready for this? In that 11-year stretch, Tom Weisskopf played in 253 tour events. He won 14 times just during those years. He was runner-up 19 times. He finished third 23 times, and he finished in the top 10 an incredible 104 times. This was at a time when Jack Nicholas was reigning. Arnold Palmer still was the king. Lee Trevino was winning majors. Tom Watson, a young Johnny Miller, Dave Stockton, Hale Irwin, Raymond Floyd, Billy Casper. The list goes on and on. It was a time when Giants roamed, and he had all through it with all of these Hall of Famers that he was battling with in the ring every single week, and through all of the adversity that he had to face, finished top three 56 times through all that. Think about that. That means that 23% of the time, or basically every fourth event that Tom Weisskopf played, he finished first, second, or third for 11 straight seasons. In that incredible total, he had 18 top 10s in major championships, including five runner-up finishes, and his major came 
at the 1973 Open at Troon. It was still just called Troon at the time. Five more years later, it would become Royal Troon. When all was said and done, Tom Weisskopf's resume looks like this. 28 professional wins all told, 16 on the PGA Tour, including that Open Championship, four PGA Tour Champions wins, including the 1995 U.S. Senior Open. He was a member of the 73 and 75 United States Ryder Cup teams. When he retired from playing actively, he was one of the voices on CBS for years, and he has become a world-class and world-famous golf course architect at that. Uh, Tom Weisskopf is simply, I, I mean, to put it in, in, in the most simplistic terms, one of the best to have ever played the game of golf. And as I mentioned to you, it is an incredible honor to welcome him to the Fairways of Life show. Uh, Mr. Weisskopf, how are you, sir? Tom, Matt. We go back a long time. Yeah, it's good to see you I'm again. Doing I, well. I... Uh, I'm doing well. How are you feeling with uh, with what was going on? Obviously, the world knows about the, the cancer scare. And, and if I may, uh, you look fantastic, by the way. You look strong. But how are things going medically on that side? Well, um, we leave a week from today, Matt. Go back to Houston. Uh, for MD Anderson and, and the surgery, which will take place on June 14th, which is a Monday. Uh, the outreaching has been absolutely mind uh, blowing be, because uh, so many people talk to Jerry Pate today, talk to Lanny. Uh, it continues all the time. People that I don't even know, uh, you know, reach out and uh, well wishes. And I hope the good Lord is listening because uh, I've said a few prayers about this myself. But I actually, you know, I feel real well. Uh, I'm down to 210 from about 230 previously. But I'm sleeping well, I'm eating well, and I've been working out a little bit, trying to get ready for the surgery. But uh, it'll be a, a, a tough two months following the surgery, they tell me. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the recovery time, but that makes sense based upon what they find and, and the nature of the surgery. You have our prayers as well, sir. We wish you the very best uh, with, with what you're facing. And hopefully in the, in the time that we have here before us, we can relive some of the memories of your incredible career as a touring professional and as, as a golf course architect as well and bring a smile to your face as you're convalescing following the same. Uh, I would love to start from the beginning. I know back in 1957 that your dad took you to the, the U.S. Open at Inverness. And if I remember correctly with that story, you saw Sam Snead hitting golf balls. Could you tell us what happened when you saw that for the first time? Because I don't believe you were a golfer at that time. Well, I just had taken up the game. I took it up basically as a caddy with two of my best friends, uh, two characters, Marty Mallinton and Ernie Kellerman. Uh, our parents got together and said, you hooligans are going to get a job this summer. I said to Marty, who was one year older than I was, or he was one year younger, what are we going to do? And he said, caddying, that's the deal. So anyway, uh, we caddied at, at a private club, and the pro every Monday, if we would pick up the balls, would give us lessons. And that's really how I got started. Wow. My mother and father were very good players. But, you know, um, you, you have to have a desire 
to love a sport. And after I started playing on those Mondays uh, with my buddies and everybody else, uh, I, fe I fell in love with the game, and Matt, and uh, I was obsessed with it. And I grew up playing on a par three, an 18-hole par three that had two uh, par fours, one on the front side and one on the back. And uh, that really developed my iron game. You know, there were various distances. I think the longest one might have been 180, but still at that time at 15 years of age, you know, that was a long iron. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I progressed and got a scholarship to go to Ohio State. And we had a wonderful golf coach, Bob Kepler, there. Jack was there, and, and uh, he, he was a senior when I was a freshman. Freshman at that time, Matt could not compete. But I played with him, and I just was blown away. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine how anybody could beat him, and not many did, that's for sure. But uh, then I got out on tour, and uh, 1964, I was invited three times uh, by sponsors' invitations. I played in the American Golf Classic. I got an invitation to play in the Western Open at Tama Shanner at that time because I was the current Western Amateur Champion. Hmm. And I played at uh, Firestone and American Golf Classic, a tournament that doesn't exist anymore. But, uh, you know, I, I, I have to say, if you just watch, it goes back to Sam Snead. I watched this guy, this rhythm was so beautiful, the sequence of timing of the swing and the, how solid he hit the golf ball compared to anybody else on that range that day. And I just loved watching him. And uh, I saw a lot of really good players play that, that year too. Uh, I remember who won, Dick Mayer uh, won in a playoff. But, uh, you know, that, that's what really, it was an inspiration to me, uh, watching Steed. And then, of course, I played with him whenever I could in practice rounds. Wow. And uh, fortunately, had the chance to, to watch him and ask him a few questions. And you learn, you learn the game watching and emulating certain characteristics that some players have. You know, Sam was a pretty tall guy, 6'1", but that swing, I still think it was the best swing in golf ever. Uh, but I picked up one thing from that swing. He always forward pressed and rocked to his left side to start his backswing, and I picked up on that, and that, that was called the waggle, you know, the short swing. Uh, now you see players watching, you know, taking the club back and watching that, whatever it takes to get you going. But uh, he just, it looks so easy and effortless. And of course he was a powerful guy, but he had a terrific short game too. But uh, playing the tour is where it's all, all the experience and all the knowledge that we gain and just watching others play this game under pressure, watching them uh, make decisions, how they play certain holes. And, uh, I had a great influence. Ken Venturi was a, was a big help to me and Tommy Bolt early in my career. And it goes on and on, but uh, you know, 
that was uh, 20 great years for me from 1965 when I actually started through 85 when I just decided I'd put my effort into golf course design instead of playing. I waited, obviously, Matt, you know that, you told that story for the senior tour to evolve. Had a great time out there, but only played in 48 events. I, I was busy doing golf courses and that was my real passion. But uh, it's a great game, it's changed tremendously. It's probably never been a better time for anybody to pick up the game, take it up because of the equipment, the availability of good equipment is there for everybody. And of course, the golf course conditioning, you know, really has changed dramatically over, you know, the time that I spent out there and uh, helps, uh, you know, the facilities, the, uh, uh, take the golf channel. I, I watch that all the time and I pick up certain little tips myself from all those great teachers that you guys uh, interview and have on at times. But, uh, you know, it's uh, it was a great, great 20 years of uh, life for me out there. Sure, it's frustrating, but the ups and downs, that's all part of it. And uh, you, you just, I played in, in uh, the best 20 years of golf. It's amazing. I, 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 as you were speaking, Mr. Weiskopf, I literally had a, had a chill running up and down my spine to think that the three initial mentors you mentioned, you know, with Sam Snead, Ken Venturi, and Tommy Bolt, all classic and all distinctive in their own right. I am really curious what kind of advice, as tall and lanky as you were, to grow into your game, become stronger, everything that, that defined you physically as an athlete. What did Sam, can you think of any of the pearls of wisdom that Sam Snead gave you in those early days? Well, you know, um, Sam told me something about the second time I played with him. And he said, if you could just shorten your swing and firm it up at the top a little bit. I was past parallel my first three or four years. And then uh, I watched Hogan. You know, I played five times with him uh, by the luck of the draw three times. The last two rounds at Colonial when Dave Stockton won. And the last round at, at Champions uh, in Houston, it was an invitational tournament. And uh, basically, he said the same thing in a different way. But Venturi really hit home, and so did Tommy Bolt. Firm it up at the top. You don't, you've got enough length in that, in that shoulder turn. You get the club back, you have a full turn, and you, you have a lot of club head speed. But if you can firm it up, and I shortened my left thumb. I started on the tour in 95 with a long thumb, what they call a long thumb, which gave me the flexibility at the top of my swing. But once I sucked that in, that was Tommy Bolt's comment. Sam just said, you know, when Venturi confirmed what Sneed said, I knew I had to do something. And that was about 1968. And that finally won my first tournament at uh, Andy Williams San Diego Open. And I worked on that for months, firming it up. And, and I think a lot of players, you know, are a little bit, well, you see it more in the ladies more, the lady LPGA, you know, they get a little loose and flippy up there and their swings a little long. You don't need, look at John Brown, 
very short backswing, yeah. tremendous power. He has a good turn. Uh, there's so many good examples of people that have absolute control at the top of their swing and throughout. But if you get a little long and a little loose under pressure, you know, you get it from the top and you flip the club at the ball and, you know, you lose control and accuracy when you do that. There's no doubt about it. So those were the best tips I had. But when you saw and had a chance to play alongside of Ben Hogan, if I may, what was that experience like? What was your takeaway from, from watching Mr. Hogan play the game? Well, I never uh, have seen anybody yet. I've played with everybody, all the great players, at least one round. I played one mm -hmm. time with Tiger, practice round at Royal Troon, and uh, Sarah, what would that have been? It had been about 2002 or three. Wow. Anyway, uh, still today, I have never seen anybody hit a golf ball with the precision, accuracy, and trajectory trajectory is the key to the game of golf on the professional level. He controlled his distance through his trajectory. And if the pin was in the back of the, of the green, he played underneath it. But it was always, you know, if the pin would have been in the middle of the green, he was pin high all the time. Over the top of the pin, uh, with the pin on the front of the green, you know, he played off the center of the green curving the ball, but uh, one of the great stories I ever heard about him, he was uh, given the opportunity by McGregor, he, he was on the McGregor staff, Matt, do we have time for this? It's a great story. Of course we do. Okay, so Hogan, I said to Bob Rickey, I saw all these pictures of these famous people that were on the McGregor staff, and they had a slogan, McGregor, they, that golf club company doesn't even exist anymore. The greatest name in golf, and you looked at Demerit and Hogan and Littler and Nicholas, and it goes out Watson, Miller. Uh, it just went on and on. Anyway, so Hogan's contract was up with McGregor, and they said they proposed to him, but he had to play this ball. McGregor came out with a ball. He always played Titleist, and um, they said. Every club will be made with your signature, Ben Hogan. Beautiful signature anyway, if you've ever seen it. You remember, it's very, it's very recognizable. Yeah. It's very cursive. And, and anyway, uh, so we're gonna take you out to the range and prove to you that we've made a golf ball that, compete, that can compete with Titleist. So they take them out. Every other three dozen McGregor's were hit by him. Every other ball was a Titleist. So they would go out and they look at the spectrum. And they had all these balls charted. And you can see they gave them the chart. And you can see, Ben, that every all the, all the McGregor balls compete at the length of the circle uh, with uh, distance. And uh, what do you have to say about that? And Hogan said, if I couldn't hit the ball straighter than that, effing machine, I'd quit this game. <laughs> what, what he was talking about, they were hitting it at this flagstick, which was Iron Byron, uh, a, a machine that was made, they plugged this driver in and hit the driver at the flagstick out, yeah. out there. But the wind was blowing about 20 miles an hour right left across the range. So all the balls were 
30 to 50 feet away on the left side of the pin. His comment was, if I couldn't hit the, and he's right, if they would have held the Olympics and he would have gone through all 14 clubs, doesn't make it pitching the ball, unbelievable pitcher and sand play and chipping runs. And, but he excelled because his trajectory was so consistent and the distance control was unbelievable. And uh, it's a great story. If I couldn't hit it better than that machine, I'd quit. You know, and he went on and he, you know, the story then 53, he wins the masters, the open U S open <laughs> and uh, the British open. And he didn't compete in the PGA because every, the only way to get to England was by boat. Yeah. And he didn't, he didn't think he had enough time to prepare for the PGA championship. But still today, the greatest strike of a golf ball bar none I've ever seen. And uh, it, it was incredible. phenomenal to watch him. You know, yep. I loved when you were uh, Tom telling us about here you played alongside of, of of Ben Hogan. Here you knew and played with with Sam Snead. You had a practice round before before it was all said and done uh, with Tiger Woods. We actually have I'll bring you I'll bring you another memory too. Uh, remember in 2015 at the Open when you guys played that Champions Challenge and, and you ran around the 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 ending, finishing, beginning and finishing holes yeah. at St Andrews. Look at this photo of you and uh, Nikki Price and Mark O'Meara and Tiger Woods on the Swilkin Bridge. I can see you on on my preview camera smiling away at this thing. What an incredible! I was there watching you that day. What an incredible day that was. What a treat it was for all of us. How special was it for you? Oh, I was so nervous off the first tee. You know, I was worried about hitting it out of bounds. Now, you know, when you start thinking like that, you know, this is well after I was playing very much at all. But still, you know, you get on that first tee with all those spectators. And what we did, we played obviously holes one and two and 17 and 18. Yeah. And on the 18th green, I never, I, I, I never contributed. I never was in any of the first three holes we played, to tell you the truth. I finally hit a good drive at 18, Matt, and I hit it up there about 12 feet. And Tiger was a little bit inside me. And he said, uh, Tom, why don't you knock this in? I said, what do you think? And he said, you tell me what you're looking at. And I said, I think it's a half a cup out on the right. And I said, I wasn't going to play that much. He said, oh, at least a full cup, Tom. You know, you can make it with a full cup to the right. And I hit it. And right when I looked up, you know, the ball went in the hole. Wow. To a point. That tells you how good of a reader of greens Tiger Woods was. All the great putters can read greens better than anybody else. That's a, a moderate putter. I was a streaky putter. I was a good putter. I didn't three putt often, but you know, I was a good lag putter, but I, I depended on when, when I had the putter going, you know, but these guys that are the great putters know how to read greens. Um, uh, it has nothing to do with the putting stroke or anything, because you could look back at all the great putters, Bobby Locke. I went out and watched him play one time in the British open. And I thought he was going to hit everything at least a foot to the right of the hole, but he hooked his putts. You know, that's the way he putted. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, Nicholas, uh, Nicholas, I read a putt for him one time. 
in a Ryder Cup match, you know, and the ball went in the hole and came out. I couldn't believe it. And I said, Jack, I, I just can't believe that putt didn't go in the hole. And he turned and looked up at me because I was a little bit taller than he was. And he said, I made it. It just didn't go in. That's the way they think, you know. It's fascinating. But from, from all those experiences and all those decades and all those players and all those eras that, that they, they represent, and, and surely you met, I know you finished second at the Masters in 72, and I want to talk to you about that, and that was just a year after Bobby Jones passed away, so surely you met him and your, and your travels on tour as well. All of it is fascinating. It, the time in which you played, you heard me mention it as I was introducing you, I truly feel like it was a time when Giants roamed. Because you still had the likes of Sam Snead and, and Ben Hogan into the late 60s when he was still uh, competing until he ultimately retired after 67. And then uh, all of you guys, whether it was the young guys like Tom Watson and Johnny Miller coming out, whether it was the established veterans like Player and Palmer and, and Nicholas and Casper, etc., to all of the other multiple-time major champions as well, like Floyd and and. And all of them, it's just, it, the list goes on and on and on. It's actually more than, and if we get to the end of it, you start to talk about Crenshaw and Strange and all the those players coming in in the middle to late 70s and, and onward. I, I just, I can't think of another time in the history of the game where it may not have had the depth from, you know, one to, to 156, but in those top 20 or 30 guys, it was a pub fight. It was unbelievable how tough it was at the top. What are your reflections, though, about the, the time in which you competed at, at the pinnacle of your game? Well, I think you defined it well. I, I think when you went into majors, you knew major championship golf takes on a different person, a different challenge, a different level of concentration, of preparation, of uh, getting ready you know, to compete. And I, I felt probably in those 20 years that I played, there was about 25 guys you had to worry about, you know. And, and it, it, it's no different. If they were playing well leading up, then they were always trying to play well leading up to a major, you know, they were going to be there. You know, now I think you, you really have to look at maybe 50 to 75 players are capable of winning major championship yeah. golf. Everything's changed for by, by instruction, uh, by watching the Golf Channel or hearing, you know, some of the thoughts of some of the great teachers. We had the ability to pick everybody's mind and we we were very open with suggestions and because you know it's a tough enough game and if you think about it what what is tiger his percentage of winning it's 20 plus percent right i think jack's just under 20 percent and but you know that that record that that uh, nicholas uh had 18 wins, 19 seconds, and 15 thirds, that tells me that he was in contention. When you finish in the top three somewhere on Saturday or Sunday, Matt, you were right there competing for that win. You may have had even had the, the, the lead or one or two back, but something happened that changed the outcome 
of that event. So to me, it's a little misleading with this top 10. I like the idea. You blew me away by, you know, the top three. I think first, second, and third, that tells me whoever finished second or third really was right there and had a chance to win that tournament. So when you think of Nicholas 53 times in major championship golf, he had a chance to win. Wow. Imagine if he would have had a good golf ball too, because we didn't have a good golf ball. The ball was not good. <laughs> I've heard it described as a marshmallow in the past before. I, I want to go through some of these finishes where you're talking about top finishes in majors. And I want to talk about yours as well. If you would allow, I'm going to talk about some top finishes that you had, and then I'm going to circle back around to your major at Troon. Uh, When you talk about top threes, I'm just going to run through some of them. The Masters, tied for second at 72, tied for second at 74, tied for second at 75. At the U.S. Open, third in 73, tied for second in 76, third in 1977. And I'm going to throw them in because it's an amazing run of performance. 78, you were tied for fourth, same in 79. At the Open, you won it in 1973. We'll circle back around it as I promised. At the PGA Championship, you had a third place finish in 75. You had a fourth place finish in 78. You also had top 10s in 73 in 1976. As late as 1982, you had a top 10 at the Masters. And in 1980, you had a top 10 at the PGA Championship. So what I'd like to do is, is reel back the years to that first tie for second that you had at the Masters in 19. 19- 69. That was the year that George Archer won. Uh, it's interesting in looking at your runner-up finishes at the Masters because you weren't fast out of the gate, but you were steady, and you tend to get better as the tournament went on from an observer's perspective. You went 71, 71, 69 in round three to move, and then a 71 on the final round uh, where George Archer had you by one stroke alongside of Billy Casper and, and George Knudsen. Uh, I knew you were you were actually paired with George that day, and that would be his best performance ever at the, the Masters of the Victory. He never even came close after that. He won other top ten in all his, his appearances at the Masters. I'm just curious, from that year in 1969, uh, Tom Weiskopf, what you recall? Well, um, I do recall one thing I didn't like the year that Archer won, and I just had it in my head that I just couldn't accept what we had to do, and that was continuous putting. I hated that. I didn't like to do that. I like to mark my ball and think about it, you know. Mm-hmm. But that, so it got in my head there. But George, George and I were, uh, were level playing 15. We were tied, and... Uh, I drove it down there a long way, much further than George did. But uh, George went for the green, which really surprised me because he's such a great pitcher of the ball. He was, and such a good putter. And uh, so he's in he's in the, the pond in front of 18 and two, out in three, and he played a pitch into the bank and skipped it up there about six feet and made the putt for for bogey, I had a I had a four iron into the green about 15 feet and two putted. And then uh, the next hole, George hit one of the best iron shots. Um, the pin was on the top ledge in the back right corner. That's a very that was always a tough pin for me. Uh, and he hit it in there about three feet and buried the hole. I I didn't I had some chances at seven. 
17 and 18, but he really played well when he had to. And that, that's the difference all the time. You make mistakes at the wrong time, and uh, you have to forget about them. And uh, anyway, uh, the other ones, uh, I was prepared at, I won at Greensboro the next time I finished second, and no one, and then I win the par three. <laughs> I win the, the par three. And I started thinking about this. Well, doggone it, I, you know, I'm playing about as good as I can play. I should win this thing. And I just got a little bit ahead of myself, Matt, to tell you the truth. And no one's ever won the par three. And, uh, and uh, the, you know, the, the week of the, uh, the, the Masters. The other ones, I, the best chance I had probably was uh, when Jack won, you know, 75. in 75. Yeah. Both Johnny and I really played well, and so did Jack, obviously. But I had, I had two makeable putts at 17 and 18. And I can only reflect back. I'm not making this as an excuse why I didn't make either one of the two, but how things influence your thinking in major championship golf. I had it right up the hill to the right of the hole at 17, about 12 feet, and I just didn't hit it. It was a right-to-left breaking putt, about a, about a four-inch break. And if I would have hit it harder, it just skid, skidded by the low side of the hole. At 18, I had about a 10-footer, 12-footer, 11-footer, something like that, you know, behind the hole. And I read the putt to break a little bit to the left. And I said to myself before I hit that putt, Matt, I said, make sure that you keep it on the high side of the hole. I reflected back to 17. And I hit it too firm, and I hit it through the break. It just barely singed the hole on the right. And um, if I if I would have had the same speed at 17 that I gave the putt at 18, I would have made that. If I would have had the same speed at 17, giving it to the putt at 18, I would have made that. But, you know, I didn't. But all you can do is do your best. And I had my chances. I had some really good chances in the U.S. Open, too, uh, those, that four-year run. But, you know, sometimes you just, uh, your mind wanders or you, you make a bad decision. It affects you go, moving forward. Or you make a good choice and, and then you become too aggressive at times. I think major championship golf is patience more than anything. I think it's absolutely patient in believing that if you can stay in there and stay within probably five of that last round on Sunday, you still have a chance to win. Amazing. And as good as these guys are, as good as we were, you know, a low round was capable. It wasn't out of sight. That's so incredible. I, I love the... I love your memories of 75, Tom Weiskopf. Uh, in particular, I recall you you go you went you were leading by one. You go out in two under par and you lose ground. That tells you how fierce was the competition coming from Miller and, and Jack on that Sunday, which is looked upon now as one of the greatest weekends, one of the greatest final rounds ever in the history of major championships. Which is incredible that you own a piece of that history. You had a, Another second-place finish at the 1976 U.S. Open when the young upstart Jerry Pate, who you mentioned, talked to you recently, uh, won 
his major championship then. But let's uh, let's talk about the, the 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 peak of glory. Let's talk about your own major championship. It was 1973. The Open was at Troon. As I mentioned, folks, it wasn't Royal Troon yet. It was Troon, but it was Troon in every regard, as you know it now, Royal or not, that the golf course can be a beast. Uh, and it, it was for you a great tournament. It was a wire-to-wire victory, but without me defining it, I'm curious what your memories are of that great triumph. Well, it all started at Colonial. I won Colonial thanks to Bruce Crampton, who uh, either bogeyed or double bogeyed the last hole. I can't quite remember. Then I went from there to Charlotte and I won uh, the Kemper. It was called the Kemper Open at uh, Quail Hollow. And then uh, I went to White Marsh, uh, a golf course in Philadelphia, a classic old course, and I won there. So I had three wins uh, previous to going to the week ahead of the British Open, you know, the Open Championship, for practice. And I was driving the ball better than I had, had ever had in my life. And I, the, the golf course was not, it was rock hard brick hard and I didn't like the fact that I had to lay up so much because my <laughs> weapon was taken away from me. However, the golfing gods allowed the rains to come on the weekend previous and during the first and second practice rounds. And it softened the golf course. I got my confidence back. I took my driver out and I birdied, uh, let's see, it was three under after the first five. It's kind of an easy start there, in all fairness. Was never tied again until I, never. I, I, I shot 67 the first round, I believe. You have those statistics. Yep. Or was it 60? I think it was 67, 68. And I was never tied uh, at any time. Johnny Miller got, got within two of me after the 70th hole. The, the par, the 69th hole, no, the 70th hole, the par five up the hill back to the clubhouse. And uh, he hit first and short sided himself on the left of the green, and there was heavy rough over there. And uh, I knew it was a one iron for me. I, I hit my one iron, I used it 11 times, never missed a or a green Whoa. hitting a one iron uh, that, that week. And I just got that confidence back. I was concerned because, I, you know, two strokes is no big deal. You know, that's a birdie bogey situation. But I had that confidence that uh, this was my chance. I had, without a doubt, the best one iron I have. I still call it the best shot I've ever hit. I hit it right at the pin. And it was about 18 feet short of the hole. Johnny didn't get it up and down. And I two putted and went to the 18th with a, three-stroke lead, and again, I took that driver out and drove it right down the fairway, hit it on the green. I got really excited. Uh, my caddy came up to me and he said, Tom, Albert Files, not with us anymore, great guy. He says, Tom, if you can two-putt, you will tie the great Arnold Palmer for the open record, of, you know, for a 72-hole tournament. That's when I got nervous. But other... Previous to that, I just had my mind. I had, I was positive. I made good choices all the time. And it just, like I said, when I 
when I finished uh, to the press, I said, first time I ever felt, knew what Jack Nicholas felt like, you know, all the time. <laughs> so uh, it was great. It was a great, uh, a great victory. And uh, then I just basically, I don't know what happened. I, 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 I don't know what the, the following years, I, I did well, but uh, I never could quite get that confidence. It's all about momentum and confidence. Uh, the PGA Tour is all about that. If you get it going and you're confident, you don't believe anybody can beat you. And that's the way these people think. But you have to build up to these majors with positive play. But uh, it was a lot of fun. There's no doubt about it. I had my chances here or there. Yeah. And, uh, boy, I'd like to have a copy of all those, uh, the, those statistics that you rattled off there because I didn't realize that I played that well. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll send you everything that we have here. The, just for the record, those four rounds that you had were 68, 67, 71, and 69. And then, as you mentioned, Johnny closed within one of the final round. Uh, uh, 70 for you, actually. I, I beg your pardon. Final round to finish on 12 under par. And you did, just to pay off the story, folks, he did two putt and he did tie Arnold Palmer, who set that mark at the very same course yeah. in 1960, yeah. which is remarkable. You've given us so much time. I, I, I want to, if I may, I want to I jump to the architecture side of your life for, for a second, too, uh, Tom Weisskopf. Sure. Um, I have had the pleasure of being at La Coloman on many of occasions. Uh, a couple of really good buddies of mine are members there. It is an incredibly inspiring place uh, from uh, from an observer's position. You very much I get the sense with Tom Weisskopf when you design a golf course that you feel the rhythm of the land, that that you don't impose anything. You you, you bring the beauty out from it that lays latent. Uh, I'm curious. And that's just my observations of your golf courses. And I've had the pleasure of being at many of them. I'm curious what your architectural philosophy is, though, from your perspective. Well, I would say minimalistic. Keep the penalties on the sides of the greens and provide a, a, a safe haven for a, uh, an out. You know what I mean by that? You know, if you have water on the left, you know, you have a chance to miss it to the right. You can still recover. Keep the openings open like links golf. Allow the player who's never going to bounce the ball and play a a run-up shot unless he's playing, you know, in uh, Scotland or Ireland or England. Mm -hmm. uh, but leave the leave the opening, you know, it's a game of misses. Who can miss it the best, basically? Uh, I got the idea of the drivable. I've done 75 golf courses, Matt, and uh, we have two under construction right now. And uh, Brilliant. I got the idea of the drivable Ford. It's the flavor of the month now. You know, I've put at least one on every one of my golf courses, and five of them have two, one on the front, one on the back. And Loch Lomond, the ninth hole, is a drivable, and then the 14th on the backside is a drivable. Under the, for the guys that can hit it as far as they hit it today, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I like to put a lot of risk-reward in a, in a in a golf course, I don't believe in these uh, extremely severe greens because they it's out of our, it's out of our control. Then, if we give them this nice golf course and the greens are real severe and they cut them 
for speeds of 12 to 13 to 14, you know, nobody can, nobody's going to enjoy something like that. I basically like, uh, you know, four good par threes, four good fives, and, and 10 good fours where at least one of them is drivable. Weisskopfdesigns.com, uh, folks. Uh, uh, sorry about that, Tom. Weisskopfdesigns.com is the website if you want to reach out to Tom and his team for uh, a redesign or a, a fresh build or whatever it is that you need. It is absolutely business uh, brilliant. Weisskopfdesigns.com for that. I'm glad to hear that you got a couple well, uh, underway right now. Are things starting to open up a little bit again? Yeah, I think I think we got a real shot in the arm, didn't we, with this COVID? It, it was so tough on everybody, but I mean, golf did not suffer, I don't think. In fact, people are taking up this game more than ever uh, for some, because you can be outside. And I would like to say one thing, Lock Loman of the 75 courses I've done, Lock Loman is the finest piece of property I've ever been given. It has the greatest uh, uh, terrain that you could ever want to have. Nothing exceeded 40 feet change of, uh, 40 foot change of elevation. All the streams and all the wetlands and, and oh. the beauty of uh, the Scottish Highlands, you know. That's my best, without, yeah, without question. Done some that good Rostu ones, Castle. but uh, I do it all myself, Matt. I have had some terrific people work for me. I don't have all the answers. There's no doubt about that. But I had enough controversy as a player to win a golf course. <laughs> I'm going to only ask you two more questions, sir, and let you go, because it's been amazing that you sure. gave us so, so much time. The first question I would have, if, if you could go back to 1964, if, if Tom Weisskopf today could speak to that fresh-faced, young, just-turned-professional Tom Weisskopf in 1964, what advice would you give to that young man? I would say make sure you're physically fit. Get on a fitness program. Tiger's the guy that started all this. I think uh, utilize the technology that's available. These companies can, if you'll take the time and put it in with them, they'll tell you what is the best driver for you, the best shaft for you, and uh, never assume anything. In other words, you know, uh, practice hard. I didn't. I didn't put a, enough time later on in my career as I should have. The short game is necessary if you're going to win championships. You you've got to have a good short game, without question. And you know, seek out advice. Uh, confine confide yourself to somebody that you trust. And, and don't, don't keep changing teachers. Fundamentals always work. And, and the last question I'd like to ask you, Mr. Weisskopf, is the exact same question that I asked Arnold Palmer when we had a chance to, to speak with him on camera. And that is, years and years from now, long after us, how do you want the game of golf to remember Tom Weisskopf? Well, uh, that's a good question. Uh, I hope they look at uh, what I gave the game. Uh, the swing was 
a, a fundamental swing. I think that's important. Uh, but my architecture is just as important to me. Uh, I probably, uh, that's, a, that's a heck of a hard question to answer. Uh, I, uh, I was an honest guy. I told it the way it was and uh, nothing wrong with that, but uh, I think I was a little bit misunderstood. But I, I won't, don't need to defend myself. I only need to defend myself in one instance, and that's where I made the mistake of uh, going on the uh, my final sheep hunt for the Grand Slam, you know, and I and I gave up my position on the Ryder Cup team in in 1977. But uh, that's why I did that. It was important to me. It was one of the things I look forward to at the end of the year. But uh, you know, I played the game. Uh, it was important to play it correctly. I think I did that, and uh, my architecture will get its own reviews. But uh, I've enjoyed that. And I enjoyed the announcing part of it, Matt. Uh, I worked, uh, gee, I'm going to think six or seven years for CBS and ESPN, certain events, and that was enjoyable. Well, I could tell so you. So I that contributed, I guess. You more than contributed, sir. The the you you are one of the legends of the game of golf. You have entertained us for decades and for many many decades to come. As I mentioned, long after you and I are gone, there will be Tom Weiskopf golf courses that people will continue to enjoy and remember who you were and what you did. Uh, hopes and prayers with you for the 14th with the surgery. Please let us know how it goes. Uh, we wish you the very very best, obviously, well, with that. And I know there's many that do. But thank you so, so very much for the time that you gave us tonight. And thank no, you. For thank you. you thank you, Matt. You have, a terrific, you have a terrific show. And uh, I just like, uh, I like these, these uh, one-on-ones. I, I really do. You can kind of figure out a person real, real quick. I think so, sir. Uh, we wish you the very best. Thanks again. Thank you. Nestled amongst the hills of the Hoosier National Forest resides a classic American destination, the French Lick Resort. Experience the ultimate in golf at the Pete Dye Course at French Lick, voted number one course in Indiana on Golf Week's Best You Can Play for 10 years in a row. The Donald Ross Course at French Lick has been named Indiana's number two course in Golf Week's Best You Can Play rankings every year since 2011. Come experience old world opulence amid modern comfort served with Midwestern charm. Visit FrenchLick.com. TheGolfTravelGroup.com is a luxury golf tour operator that specializes in custom travel itineraries to Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and more. Guaranteed advanced tee times, incredible accommodations, airport meet and greet services, private guided tours, and private drivers, all in luxury vehicles. And they have a staff that's been doing it forever. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. I'm Tiger Woods, and I chose Bridgestone. I wanted to be with a company that I knew, and then on top of that, I made superior product. So I did. I came back, and I started playing with the Bridgestone Tour BXS, and it's allowed me to maintain the spin and the feel I like around the greens, especially my short irons, but also have that penetrating flight through the wind. The aerodynamics have been phenomenal. I know the quality that Bridgestone has, R&D that's available to them, and what they were able to create that helped me win golf tournaments. Even though we're in Texas, 
We don't believe that bigger is always better. At Ben Hogan Golf, we believe in something called micromanufacturing, a concept Mr. Hogan taught us long ago. It's a belief that handcrafting golf clubs one at a time to your exacting specifications is the reason we make some of the best quality and best performing equipment in the world. And we don't believe in big prices. That's why we only sell directly to you at BenHoganGolf.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you in pain in the golf course? You know, pain management is a crisis in America. It affects over 100 million people and 35% of golfers. But now we can do something about it. BioFit 360 is a new company here to help us manage and alleviate that pain naturally. They've developed a formula that safely extracts CBD from the hemp plant and utilizes all of its healing properties to help us. They have a relief cream, they have gummies, they have sleep aids, and much more. It will change the way you feel on the golf course and in life. All you need to do is head to BioFit360.com. Feel better, do better, be better. Hi, I'm Brian Hammonds. You country club members can now represent your club and compete in a Ryder Cup-style event. The inaugural Country Club National Championship presented by Fuzzy's Ultra Premium Vodka. It's October 12th through the 17th at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The field is limited, so don't delay. For more information, go to ccncgolf.com. That's ccncgolf.com. I hope to see you and your team in Orlando. Streamsong is so special with three top 100 U.S. courses designed by four legendary architects. Tom Doak's Blue Course, Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw's Red Course, and Gil Hansen's Black Course. Secluded by thousands of acres, the greatest golf stories are lived, not told. Streamsongresort.com If I told you legends like Robert Trent Jones Sr., Arthur Hills, and Donald Ross have designed and inspired more than 10 breathtaking courses and they're all in one place, would you believe me? Where is this special place? How far do I have to travel for this golfing nirvana? The answer could both surprise and delight you. It's right around the corner in the heartland of the country. It's Boyne Golf in Northern Michigan. It's a destination so special, so unique, that you'll think you're playing golf on a work of art along the cliffs of the Monterey Peninsula or the raw, sweeping landscapes of Scotland. From elite instruction with the Boyne Golf Academy, tournaments, and so much more, Boyne Golf truly offers an unrivaled golf vacation experience. Log on to BoyneGolf.com and see why they're at the heart of America's summer golf capital. Come to where history meets luxury at the family-friendly French Lick Springs Hotel, where there's something for everyone, from kids' fest to shopping, bowling, golf, and other outdoor activities. Or at the West Baden Springs Hotel, you can wrap yourself in old-world elegance, visit our luxurious spa, indulge in an afternoon tea, a historic tour, and multiple sophisticated dining options. Then, finish your day with a cozy carriage ride before turning in for sweet dreams. Only this isn't a dream. Visit FrenchLick.com to plan your vacation today. What's your bucket list destination? Where have you always wanted to go? What's the number one thing that holds people back from doing that? It's fear of logistics. I don't know where to stay. I don't know how to get tea times. I don't know where to go. I don't know who should take me there. Well, I'll tell you who knows the answer to all those questions. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. That's why the Fairways of Life show has aligned ourselves with these experts. And is there some place you want to go, like the Open or a President's Cup or a Ryder Cup? They can take care of that as well. What is your golf bucket list? Where do you want to go? Do it with TheGolfTravelGroup.com. It's green. 
tracks. It's soft. It reacts. It is the all-new Tour B with a game-changing reactive cover designed to spring faster off your driver and stick longer to your wedges. Try the new Tour B. The Tour Ball. Reinvented. Let's face it, there's no better feeling than getting new golf gear. And where you get your golf gear matters. PJ Tour Superstore is America's number one golf retailer. Whatever you're looking for, they have it. And you can get custom fit. You can shop online or safely in their stores. At the PJ Tour Superstore, you'll always find golf's biggest brands and all the latest equipment right at your fingertips. If you need it or want it, they've got it. Log on to PGATourSuperstore.com to upgrade your game today.